We're looking at this morning's study, Mary's visit to Elizabeth and the song that she composed in praise of Christ. So that's the first point in your bulletin outline, the visit to Zechariah and Elizabeth. The angel Gabriel was the news carrier to Mary concerning Elizabeth's pregnancy, verse 36. It's an indication that this was not the day of email. It was not even the day of snail mail. So Elizabeth is in her sixth month of pregnancy, but Mary had no knowledge of this till now. What was stunning about Elizabeth's pregnancy was the fact that she was an old woman when this occurred. And where have we been studying that? Well, in our previous series, which is not finished yet, uh, we have seen the same about Sarah with regard to Abraham. Now, Elizabeth is wife to Zechariah, a priest, serving in the temple of the, at the time of Herod the Great. Look at verse, 30, uh, verse 5, same, same chapter. They both were descendants of Aaron, the priest, and verse 6 tells us both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well on in years. There were many priests that served in this particular capacity. If you want the full list, you go to First Chronicles 24, and you'll see all of the orders of uh, the priests that were established in Old Testament times. But even within a division of the priesthood, they cast lots, verse 9, to see what priests would have the privilege to burn incense on the altar of incense. According to Exodus 20, this incense was to be placed on the altar morning and evening. So twice a day, what would that tell you? It would tell you that the incense was always to be burning on this altar. They never left it go out. And, of course, as the incense arose in the tabernacle towards heaven, it was symbolic of the prayers of God's people. Well, with so many in the division, they cast lots to see what priests would have that privilege. This day, the lot fell on Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is what? From the Lord. It's every decision from the Lord. It isn't the fickle finger of fate that controls our destiny. It is God Almighty. And you can throw the dice all you want, but God tells you how they're going to flip up and what the decision will be. So, while the people were praying outside, Zechariah was doing some praying on his own on the inside, verse 13. And while this was happening, whoa, the angel of the Lord revealed himself to them, to him, and yes, that his prayer had been heard. Okay, what was his prayer? Elizabeth would bear him a son whom he was to name John. So you know what his prayer was. This is, this is a guy without any heir. He has no children. So he gets a chance to go in and, and put the incense on the altar. And while he's inside, 
He has his own personal prayer. Scripture says, verse 16, Of John, many of the people of Israel, he will bring back to the Lord their God. By the way, this is John the Baptist, from which the Baptists, of course, take their name. But, sad to say, (laughs) angel announcement or no, Zechariah doubted that all this would happen. And for that reason, verse 20, he was rendered speechless until John was born. It was, a, it was a chastisement for him for his, his lack of faith. And that would explain to us, would it not, upon Mary's visit, it's the two women that are doing all the talking here in our text. And if Zechariah was present, he still remained unable to speak. So what about Mary and Elizabeth's conversation? Well, Mary entered the house and she greeted Elizabeth, which caused baby John to stir in Elizabeth's womb. Let me ask something. Can, can, babies, can babies recognize voices outside the womb and distinguish them? Well, an article from the website pregnancyandbaby.com addresses this very thing. Here's what they say. It's writing to the women. So it says, your baby's ears begin to form around eight weeks and they become structurally complete at about 24 weeks. 24 weeks, 6 months. How long has Elizabeth been pregnant? Verse 36, 6 months. Thanks to the magic, the article goes on. Thanks to the magic of ultrasound and other high-tech tools, researchers have discovered that your baby is living in an auditory playground, responding to voices and other sounds that they hear outside the womb. Studies have found that a fetus can hear sounds, though muffled, at as early as 20 weeks, and by the third trimester, their hearing is intact. Sonograms show that your baby may turn their head in response to a noise. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, the whooshing sound that your baby hears in your womb is to them louder than a vacuum cleaner. Most experts agree that your baby can be startled by a loud or unexpected noise. Research has found that these jarring disruptions can change the baby's heart rate, can change the baby's movements, or even prompt them to empty their bladders, according to WebMD. And many pregnant women have reported a fetal jerk or kick at the sound of a backfiring car or a slammed door. This being said, it's also been found that a fetus heart rate often slows when they hear mom talking. So there's a good chance your baby not only hears you, but recognizes your voice and finds comfort in it. While it appears that the fetus can pick up specific speech patterns, it's unlikely that it can pinpoint words. Rather, it's the tone that resonates with them. End of the article. When Mary entered Zechariah's house, she called out a greeting. This word for greeting, a Greek term, which means to draw to oneself. We would say a hug accompanied by a salutation. There's going to be a lot of that at Christmas time, right? Your relatives walk in the, oh, 
it's so good to see you all. And we grab them on and we hug them and we, it, we greet them and that's what's going on here. And verse 41, Luke tells us, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice too that so far, it is Eliz- so far it is Elizabeth who is said to have heard Mary's greeting, but baby John responds with a leap. Mary's voice would be what? The new voice, right? The startling voice, the, the strange voice, as unfamiliar to baby John as any voice of any stranger. So there seems to be some collaboration with the science that tells us babies respond to different sounds or tones from people outside the womb, people other than mom. Now we could leave it there, and I would be fine with that, wouldn't you? But God doesn't leave it there. He goes on to tell us that at the greeting of Mary, verse 44, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. See how that's worded? Okay, here's the question. How does baby John hear Mary through Elizabeth's ears? How does Elizabeth know that baby John was moved to leap because of joy? And what joy could that be that would cause an unborn child to react? Well, brethren, it's all here in the text. Firstly, we are told that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit upon hearing Mary's greeting, verse 41. Secondly, upon being filled with God's Spirit, Elizabeth sang a song. It's just a short little poem here. But she sang it in a loud voice, it says. What does the poem say that would result in bringing joy to baby John? Verse 42. Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Very loud, you know. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord, what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. What did Gabriel relate to Zechariah concerning John? It's in chapter 1. We're in chapter 1. Look at verse 14 and following. He will be a joy and delight to you, Zechariah, and many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for what? The Lord. The Lord. So John, John is filled with the Holy Spirit like his mother, and he's already in a state of righteousness and ready to summon people to righteousness as Elijah of old had done and to pave the way for Jesus' ministry among the people as Lord and Savior. That, that all connects. And that brings him great joy. John is no ordinary prophet. And Jesus is no ordinary baby. 
The Holy Spirit of God is in it all, and it accounts for Elizabeth's knowledge and conclusions. She knows that Mary herself is pregnant. Think about this. All these things she knows. She knows that Mary herself is pregnant. She knows that Mary and Mary's child is blessed of God in a special way. Verse 42. She knows that Mary's child is none other than the Lord of glory. Verse 43. She knows that Mary has exhibited faith in God and believes God's word to her about Jesus. Verse 45. And finally, Elizabeth is convinced that we've got what God has promised to Mary will be accomplished. Verse 45. So Elizabeth's comments encourage, they hearten Mary. She knows a lot, doesn't she, Elizabeth? How could Elizabeth know so much about Mary's situation when Mary had known nothing about hers? It is confirmation from the Holy Spirit that all that has heretofore been promised to Mary was already in the works. Verse 39 says, Mary hastened to Judah to visit Elizabeth, but something more hasty had occurred. She has already conceived Jesus, the Savior of the world, by the Holy Spirit, verse 35. It's too early for Mary to show. It's too early for her to know that she's pregnant, but the Holy Spirit knows. And he uses Elizabeth to confirm the miracle. Jesus is already alive. He's already growing in Mary's womb. How marvelous it is of God, not only to promise us things by his word, but to prove to us that his promises are real and already in play. Mary needed this um, confirmation from Elizabeth. It was a confirmation of her faith that God was already working within her to bring about what he had promised. Now, as a result of all this, Mary composes a song. It has been called the Magnificat of Mary. That's because the first word in the song in Latin is the word for magnificent or magnificent or great. And so we have this song written for us. The NIV, NIV uh, indents it so you know it's a song. You know it's a poem. It's not prose here. It is uh, a poem that's being composed. And it has been called her song. Well, you know that songs, uh, we just sang a bunch of songs from our hymnal. Songs have stanzas, right? You have verse 1, verse 2. Uh, when we're in choir rehearsal, Jared will say, look at stanza 1, which is the first part of the song, or look at the last stanza, and he'll refer us to the latter part, and so on. Well, Mary's song has stanzas too. It has four. So let's look at these. Verse 46 through 48, the first stanza. Mary, Mary glorifies God for what he has done and is doing. What he has done and what he's doing. It will not do for Mary to gloat over the fact that she is to become the earthly mother of God's Son. Nor will it do for theologians or churches or religious orders to venerate Mary on a place or place her on a pedestal that beclouds the truth of what has happened. Okay, what has happened? Verse 8, Mary is but a humble servant that God has elevated with this honor. 
Okay, what's the honor? Verse 48, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Why? Because she was handpicked by God to incubate and birth his son, and there can be only one woman so honored. Gabriel said to Mary that she, verse 30, had found favor with God. Now, does that mean that there's something unique about Mary that sets her above others? Was she sinless? Was she perfectly holy, as Rome declares? If so, why does she sing, as she does sing, in verse 47, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Could this be simply the saving that God did in Old Testament times when he would save Israel from their enemies and deliver them safe? Well, that's what Roman Catholicism says. Yes, that's, that's all this means, that Mary, uh, you know, uh, is saved by God in that very physical sense. The Catholic doctrine concerning Mary is that of immaculate conception. And that doctrine has nothing to do with Jesus being sinless. But it teaches that Mary was sinless before, during, and after she was conceived, so she didn't have any need for a Savior. I mean, only sinners need saviors, right? But this cannot be. For in another gospel account, Matthew records the words of the angel to Joseph concerning Mary's child, and here's what the angel says. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, Savior, because he will save his people from the tyranny of the Roman legions. Is that what it says? No. He will save his people from economic ruin and downturn, downturn times in terms of crops and famine. Is that what it says? No. He will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, verse 21. The very next verse states, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So I say this was the nature of the salvation that Joseph was told would result from Emmanuel. Salvation not from Roman tyranny or anything else, but from sin. And it is this Savior that Mary praises as the virgin blessed by God to birth him into the world. She saw in her child the long-anticipated Savior who would forgive her and her fellow countrymen of their sins. Thomas Kelly's hymn echoes this same theme. We're going to sing this at the end of today's service. Praise the Savior, ye who know him who can tell how much we owe him. Gladly let us render to him all we are and have. Thomas Kelly had it right. So the first stanza is a praise of God for Savior. Second stanza of her song is in verse 49 and 50, and it consists of thanksgiving and praise. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. 
His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. All right, what great things, plural, had God done for Mary? Well, he had taken a lowly, obscure Jewish girl, pledged to be married to a carpenter tradesman, and had elevated her to the favored position of the coming Messiah's mother. This was, may I say, this is a great, great honor. While we must be careful not to venerate Mary in ways that exalt her as being co-equal with Jesus, we must also not discount or belittle her position as chosen by God. Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of her Lord, verse 43, and identifies her as blessed are you among women and blessed is the child that you bear, verse 43. And in Gabriel's words, we learn the nature of Mary's child. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. King David's heir, verse 32, whose kingdom and rule will never end, verse 33. Mary is providing a human body for the king of the universe. This is not a small thing. This is not a small thing. It is the doctrine of incarnation. What's incarnation? Well, it's a, it's a theological term. You won't find the term itself in the Bible. The concept is in the Bible. Incarnation has to do with the physiological occurrence. It comes from late Latin, incarnationum, a compound of two words, in and caro, meaning flesh. In flesh. Thus, incarnation is a reference to God coming or being encased, can I say it that way, encased in flesh. It's like... Baby's born every day, right? Except this is a miracle, wonderful miracle, that God would be encased in flesh. Jesus himself gives this explanation as recorded by the writer in Hebrews 10, verse 5 and following. Here's what he writes. When Christ came into the world, he said, now he's talking to God the Father, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. He's referring to the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament times. Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. These are Jesus' own words. And then in verse 10, the writer goes on to say, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Compare that to all the repetitions of the imperfect animal sacrifices in the Old Testament that went on year after year after year because they could never take away sin. But one offering could, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And note, it is this mercy, verse 49, by which Mary and all generations are blessed, verse 50, for which Mary gives thanks and praise. The Apostle John shows the value of Jesus 
incarnation and his atoning work when he writes in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 5, verse 11 and following these words. He says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all in the sea singing to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen! And the elders fell down and worshipped. Revelation 5, verse 11 through 14. Great lesson here, brethren, is that believers exhibit their thanks to God for His mercy because God's mercy is not a right. It's not a right, but it's a privilege. It is not obligatory on God's part, but it is a gift of His grace. In God's own words, He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Exodus 33, verse 19. What is God saying in those words? He's saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Mercy is something I dispense. Compassion is something I dispense. Men have no right to it, but I give it to whom I will. That's the second stanza. We need to praise God for his mercies every day. Third stanza, verse 51 and 53. There is assurance here of God's rule. I'm glad she put this in her song. She says, he has performed mighty deeds with his arms. Okay, what are they? He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. Let me ask this question. Who runs your life? Who runs your life? Many would answer, well, I do. (laughs) I run my life. I am my own man, or I am my own woman, as the case may be. We all like to assert our independence. We have been taught that, right? No one's going to tell me what to do. Children practice this from their youth, saying to a fellow brother or sister, and I've heard this so many times, You're not my boss. I don't have to listen to you. (laughs) Kids say that to one another all the time. And if it's not checked by wise parenting, that child will grow up thinking that all of life revolves around him or her, and as they carry that attitude into marriage or into the workforce, they soon discover that they are not as independent as they thought. There are men who can't hold down a job because they're always telling the boss off. So they move to the next job, and they tell him off, too. There are marriages that break up because each one has their own independence. But you know, by the time people reach adulthood, it becomes 
very difficult to eat humble pie, <laughs> to realize that there are factors outside our control which influence and shape our lives, our achievements, our goals, our relationships, yes, even our destiny. Mary is a young teen, but she is way ahead of her time in her thinking. She's well-versed in biblical teaching that she affirms that it is God's mighty deeds that have shaped her world. She sees rightly so that there are two classes of humanity. One is the proud, the haughty, the rich, the influential, the arrogant, the ruling class. But then secondly, there's the humble, the poor, the nobodies of society, the impoverished, the downtrodden. And right in the mix, in the middle, is God Almighty, who with his mighty arm, she says, verse 53, and like a maestro conductor of a vast orchestra, directs the various players to produce the music he ordains to be played. And Mary mentions one main melody, and then she mentions a counter melody. The main melody is verse 51. He scatters those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He topples rulers over from their thrones, verse 52. He sends the rich away empty, verse 53. And the counter melody of music is this. God lifts up the humble, verse 52. He fills the hungry with good things, verse 53, not the least of which is his salvation. This symphony of life is illustrated in Jesus' account of the rich man who died and went to hell. And later the beggar who sat outside his door also died but went to paradise. And the rich man pleaded with Abraham to intercede. Luke 16, verse 25 and following. Son, Abraham answered, remember that in your lifetime, now remember back, in your lifetime you received good things. While Lazarus, the beggar, received bad things, but now he is comforted here in paradise, and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you, is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone over there come to us. You know anything about this account? It's neither the rich man nor Lazarus were masters of their own fate, neither one. No. One received the just recompense of his sinful life, the other did not. The rich man reaped what he had sown, Lazarus received mercy and was forgiven what sin he had sown. And God did it all by his mighty arm. And he set a chasm between the blessed and the cursed, that could not, may I say, that cannot be altered in the afterlife. By faith, Mary saw this about God and his dealing with sinners. God has two musical themes going on here. Bringing down the haughty, the arrogant, the self-righteous, and elevating the humble and the downtrodden. Do you see this? The lesson here is that your destiny is in God's hands. And do not look to this life as the barometer for what's to come. It is not that the rich man was condemned for his wealth, nor that Lazarus was rewarded for his poverty. If you think that, you're not getting the right message here. 
Abraham and Mary with him teach us that the circumstances of life that we experience now are not necessarily the music that we will hear for all of eternity. God is the determining factor. That's what you need to hear. He alone must be worshipped. He alone must be praised. The time for repentance, the time for change is now, today. And Mary saw that. God is in control of everyone's life. And then the fourth stanza, the last stanza in Mary's song, is found in verse 54 and 55. And her point here is that all believers receive mercy. Let me read it. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful, to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Here's a proof that Mary knew her Bible. Really great. She knew the Old Testament account of Abraham and his descendants and the promises God had made to them. They were fixed within her mind, and so she incorporated these thoughts into her song. It's great. You sing, if you sing scriptural thoughts back to God, that's, that's great hymnology. That's great music. I refer, refer again <clears throat> here to Luke's genealogy of Mary. It's in Luke chapter 3, a couple pages over, where you will note that verse 34 references Abraham. Mary in our text, also references Israel as God's servant. Israel, as a name, has a double meaning. It can refer to Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, whose name was changed by God himself, or it can refer to the nation of people fathered by Jacob. Both are found in Genesis 35, verse 10 and following. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be, here it is, Israel. Jacob got a name change. His name was changed to Israel. From deceiver to Israel, God prevails. Let's read on. So, he named him Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will come from your body. What's that? That's a re reference to the nation of Israel. He goes on. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. One great lesson to learn here is that when God makes a promise or pledges his faithfulness to a particular believing family, it often, not always now, not always, but it often includes the believer's descendants, their children. Have you not noticed that faith has a way of um, cutting a river through the lies of great-great-grandparents to great-grandparents to grandparents to parents to children. This does not mean that faith is passed on through the biological genes like 
eye color and skin tone, but rather that God rewards fidelity on the part of the grandparents and the parents in teaching their children about God. For example, God said to Abraham, I have chosen him. Why have you chosen Abraham, God? I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Genesis 18, verse 1. You know, parents, we have a job to do. Abraham had a job, a job to do. Abraham was chosen so that he'd be a teacher of his children about the things of God. In the New Testament, we have the account of Timothy, of whom Paul said, But as for you, continue in what you have learned, Timothy, and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how, from infancy... You have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15. Well, then we have to ask the question. How was Timothy exposed to the scriptures which were instrumental in bringing him to salvation? It's found in the first part of the book. I have been reminded, writes Paul, of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded, now lives in you also. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5. What is he saying? He's saying the witness of grandmother Lois and the witness of mother Eunice changed Timothy's heart. But you know, it never changed Timothy's father's heart. who is an unnamed Greek idolater in Acts 16, verse 1. But it changed Timothy. He profited from his Christian heritage because he was exposed to it. He eagerly studied the scripture. Timothy's father, like so many men, remained aloof, cynical, unmoved, unrepentant by his wife's clear testimony to God's gracious salvation. But you know what God does sometimes? He just skips over a generation. He skips over arrogant, willful, know-it-all fathers to the next generation, and he saves their children in spite of their own defiance to the gospel. It's a wonderful truth. We need to keep that in our memory and praise God for that. Mary, however, reminds us of another truth. It's in verse 54. He, referring to God, has helped his servant Israel, remembering, <laughs> remembering to be merciful. How did he help Israel? How did he help Jacob? Remembering to be merciful. If you know anything about Isaac and Rebekah's children, which was Esau and Jacob, twins, Jacob whose name has been changed to Israel, if you knew anything about them, likely you would have preferred Esau. Why? Well, because he was a man's man, as we say, rugged, self-reliant, strong, handsome, 
an able entrepreneur, hardworking guy. Jacob, what about Jacob? Well, he, Jacob was, uh, he was a mama's boy. <laughs> Self-absorbed, stay-at-home guy who was very ambitious, but in an evil sense. His name means, Jacob the name means, heel catcher. A heel catcher. What, what, does that, what does that mean? Well, not simply in the sense that he latched onto the heel of his twin brother Esau when they were being born, though that's true, but primarily it means one who trips others up by snatching at their heels. Hence, one who deceives, one who mm, lays traps for others. Not a very commendable trait. I don't think Jacob had a lot of friends. Now here's the lesson. Mary reminds us that God can take that lying, conniving, self-centered sibling of yours or your unbelieving father or your godless mother or those wicked in-laws and make them into an Israel. He can take a liar who couldn't think or tell the truth if it was written out for him on a three-by-five card and bring him to the place of righteousness because God prevailed in mercy and saved them in spite of their arrogant defiance of all things spiritual. And so Jesus told the people of his day, listen to what he told them, you should always pray and not Give up. Always pray, not give up. Luke 18, verse 1. Wow, Mary's song, four stanzas, has a lot to teach us about our salvation and about our God. Now the epilogue, look at verse 20, verse 56. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Look at verse 37. Elizabeth is in the sixth month of her pregnancy when Mary arrived. She stays on a three-month visit. That means what? Nine months total? Might Mary have been there when John the Baptist was born? I don't know. But very possible. And the next verse says, that Elizabeth had her son, and so on. Marvelous lessons on faith and living life from Mary. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, how important it is to us. Here's a woman, and we might think, hey, she's a teenager. She can't write songs. What does she know? And this, if she does write, does write a song, won't be very spiritual. She's too young to know very much about God. And yet, as we read the verses of her song, and we delve into these things by the scriptures, we learn that Mary knew you, teenager or no. And she was well-versed in the scriptures, and she believed the scriptures. She believed in the God who had spoken. It would be shortly proven in Elizabeth's birth of John and not very much longer in the birth of her own child, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, where we are cynical, 
where we are unbelieving, would you do for us what Mary has promised? Would you remember mercy to the Jacobs of the world, the deceivers, the self-righteous? Would you bring humility to our hearts? Would you forgive our arrogance and our pride? And would you do it firstly and foremost for your own glory and secondly for our good? We would praise you for that. Help us to be humble as we think at this time of the year of our salvation and how it came to be. Let's remember Mary's song this week. Let's remember the thoughts that she verses for us. Let us rejoice that what she knew she shared. And she put it in a song for us all to read. And here it is in our Bibles for all times. We bless thee for her. Thank you, Lord, that you work so much in her life. Thank you for the Holy Spirit in Mary's life and in Elizabeth's life. We pray, Lord, that we might live as people filled by your Spirit as well. Bless this day for us as we continue to worship, as we think of who our God is and who our Savior is, namely Jesus, in whose name we pray.